Welcome to Mercy House. Feels like Easter or something, man. We're glad you're here. If you are in elementary school, uh, you can go down to the class. We've been in the book of Acts, and there's Bibles there on the floor. I, I, I would love for you to follow along. I don't put all the scriptures up on the screen, and, and we're in Acts chapter 12, as you just heard read. Uh, but go ahead and find that in the Bible. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. Um, we, we've been looking at this pattern that occurs uh, throughout the book of Acts, where there's an advancement of the gospel mission, and then there's persecution. And we see the first advancement of the gospel mission in, at Pentecost. And thousands of people come to know Jesus. Then we see Peter and John incarcerated and questioned. Then we see uh, a man healed and thousands more come, come to know Christ. And then we see Peter and John brought in for questioning, incarcerated and flogged. Then we see the first deacons chosen. And they continue in the ministry to the widows. And so you see this powerful ministry of both word and deed and even some of the Jewish priests in town become Christians. And then Stephen is stoned to death. Out of that persecution, the church then scatters. And they start sharing the gospel with Samaritans and Gentiles. And there's a lot of receptivity. And we read about uh, Cornelius and his whole family coming, coming to faith in Christ. Uh, in chapter 11, you see Antioch, uh, several people becoming Christians and a church being started there in that city. And then we see what we read today. We see King Herod getting involved in the persecution. We've not seen this before. We've seen the religious leaders who have some civil authority that are participating in persecution, but we've never seen this kind of top-down persecution against the church. And it's, it's serious. It's a serious, it's a dark, it's a dire time i read these first few verses of Acts 12 again here. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the Herod of Acts chapter 12 is a different Herod than the Christmas story. Herod the Great is in, Christmas, in the Christmas story. Um, and he's the one who, after he finds out that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, orders that all the baby boys under two years of age be killed. Right? And then there's another Herod that's part of the story leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And that's uh, Herod Antipas, and he's a different Herod. And then this is Herod Agrippa, I think, the second. And it is a complicated way in which they're all connected. Look it up on Wikipedia. I did last night, and I was like, so complicated, I'm not even going to try to explain it. Um, but they are, all these Herods are essentially puppet kings that are installed by the Roman government. And they have a lot of power as long as they do what Rome tells them. And they don't really have to follow a lot of due process laws. They can do whatever they see fit to keep the peace in whatever region that they are over. And so he sees that it is fit to behead James. That's what it means. He was killed by the sword. 
that he was beheaded. And this is James, the brother of John, also the, an apostle. James is part of the, the inner three that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And not only have they killed James, but they brought Peter into custody, and it seems like Herod's plan is to then behead Peter as well. This is serious. These are key leaders in the Christian movement. They're teachers, they're shepherds, they're also symbols of the movement. They have also been appointed by Jesus to be the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's part of what it means to be an, an apostle. And so for James to be killed, to, to have been one of those appointed apostles, and now Peter, who is really the, the ringleader, the head of the, the apostles in, in general, for him to be near death. Th this is a really dire situation. And so the question that we want to answer this morning is, how does the church deal with this kind of an in intense persecution? How do they deal with that? How do they respond to that? And, and as we go through this, we're going to see three, at least three ways that they deal with intense persecution. So one is they expect it. They expect it. Uh, I've read some of Matthew 10 before. I'm going to read a little bit uh, today because I think this is part of the training that was reverberating in their minds as they were experiencing the persecution that Jesus had trained them. He had taught them. He had said to them things like Matthew 10, 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. A few verses later in verse 27, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Can you imagine new employee orientation? So in the course of this job, you will be incarcerated, tortured, and killed. That's, that's pretty much what Matthew 10 is saying. This is what's going to happen. And indeed, that is what happens. James, the brother of John, is beheaded. Andrew, who's Peter's uh, brother, is, is scourged. He's tied to a cross. He's not nailed to a cross. So he just has to hang up there until he dies of exposure. Uh, Philip is scourged, thrown into prison, crucified. Bartholomew is beaten and eventually crucified. Thomas is martyred by being run through with a spear. Matthew stabbed in the back by a, a swordsman. James the Lesser, that's the other James, unfortunate nickname. Uh, maybe he was short, I, I, I don't know. Uh, every time I read that, I'm like, man, that's just sad. Um, he's beaten, stoned, and, uh, and clubbed until he's dead. Uh, Thaddeus is crucified, Simon the Zealot, that's not Simon Peter, that's the other Simon, crucified. And we know eventually Peter will be crucified, and he'll be crucified upside down. They expect it. Jesus told them, this is, this is what's going to happen. 
Um, but what else do they do? Well, verse 6 of Acts 12. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So here's the second thing they do. They pray. They pray. Peter's in quite a predicament. He's in prison. He's chained to two soldiers. There are soldiers that are guarding the door of the cell. I think Herod is, is pretty concerned about the security around Peter. We don't know why. That maybe he's heard about some of the supernatural things that have occurred and He's worried about that, or maybe he's worried that there's so many thousands of Christians, they might start a mob and come in and take the place over. But for whatever reason, he has secured Peter to the nth degree. Now, Peter doesn't seem to be too concerned. He's asleep. I love this. <laughs> he's like, I'll, I'll, I'm going to take a nap, right? And, and I, I think he thinks he's going to meet the same fate that James has met. Yet, there's a trust there, there there's, there's a, uh, a trust that if I die, I die, I get to be with Jesus. If I'm alive, I'll, I'll continue to do ministry, I'll, I'll continue to share the gospel. And, and he sleeps, he rests, and the church is praying. The church is praying. You can see that little turn there, where Luke is describing this horrible, awful, dark, dire situation, and then there's the turn. This is, and the church was praying. It says it was earnest prayer. This Greek word that's translated uh, earnest in the English Standard Version is getting at one of the facets of the Greek word there. It's, it's one. It's one of the things about the Greek, that Greek words oftentimes have many facets, and there's not one English word where you can just really nail it down. And so translators have to make choices about which facet they want to point to oftentimes. And so ESV chooses earnest or genuine. Uh, New American Standard uh, chooses fervent. So that's a facet that's more about just the passion of their their prayer. Uh, New King James uh, chooses constant, which really gets at the persistence of the prayer. So there's an earnestness about it. There's a fervency about it. There's a constancy about this kind of prayer. The Amplified Version, which I want to introduce that version to you, makes an attempt to give several English words to one, English, one Greek word that may have several facets. And so sometimes I'll go look at the Amplified and see what words they choose. And, and what, here's what they say. Peter was kept in prison, but fervent and persistent prayer for him was being made to God by the church. It's fervent. It's persistent. It's also corporate. This is not just individuals that make up the church that are at home all praying. We find out later in the text that they are actually in a home together and they're praying together. They're, they're staying up all night praying. Uh, this past uh, Thursday, we had our monthly 24-hour prayer where we signed up for 15-minute inc- increments or 30 or hour or however long you had uh, the, the open schedule to do. And so we filled that whole 24 hours. And it was, it was, it was a pretty awesome experience to do that along with uh, others in the church, and, and to pray, and then to, to meet here. We met here on Thursday evening, and we, we actually fasted as we were praying during that 24-hour time. We met here, we prayed together for a couple of hours, then we broke the fast, 
uh, together. And I actually shared this, this text, and I said, this is, this is what the church did. It gathered corporately to pray. Now, why are they praying? Why are they praying? It does seem a little interesting when you think about this. Uh, they're praying for Peter after James has already been beheaded. So you think, are they praying because they didn't pray for James? And they decided, man, we better pray for Peter if we want to keep Peter around. Or, or was it that they only prayed two hours for James? And now they're thinking, we're going to go all out for Peter. 24 hours. We're, we're going to pray for 24 hours for Peter, and then maybe we can hold on to Peter. Or, or are, they, are they thinking, prayer doesn't really matter in terms of outcome, but we just want to have a nice communion with God and connect with Him and worship Him. I don't think it's any of those three. Not, not, not any of those three. I, I think they have a perspective, okay? So here's the third, the third piece here. So, so they, they, they expected persecution, they prayed, and they had a perspective of providence, of providence, God's providence. What I mean by that, their understanding is that God is all-powerful and that God is all-good and that God is all-wise, that He's all-powerful, we might say might use the word, he's sovereign. But he exercises that power in ways that are good and wise. That's, that's providence. And they, they had that perspective of the providence of God, that God is always active. He's always powerfully, wisely exerting that power in ways that are good. When we say as Christians, sometimes in, in church settings, someone will say, God is good. And the church will say, all the time. And then the person will say, all the time. Right. And, and what they're saying, when, when we say that little back and forth, is that no matter what is happening, no matter if, if we're having a hard time understanding how a good God can allow this or that, it's good. Right? That the providence of God over the, over the long haul is accomplishing what is what is good. He's working that out in the lives of His people. And so in God's providence, He deemed it wise to allow James to be beheaded. He, he's going to deem that wise in the lives of almost all of the apostles except one. This is not stoicism. I want you to hear that. that it, it's not, well, you know, it is what it is. Right? That's a little phrase that gets thrown around a lot. And there's this kind of a hard-heartedness to that. It's like, I, I, sort of whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm just going to harden myself to that. It's not like that. If you remember back when, when Stephen was martyred, and then this little phrase from uh, Acts 8, verse 2, it, it captured my attention. It says, devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. Uh, sometimes we read... These, these, these chapters in Acts, we feel a little bit distant from it. It's like these are like superhumans, and you know, they, were, they were courageous, and they were sharing the gospel, and people got killed, and they were like, glory to God, you know, let's just move on. It's not what it was like. It was scary. It was hard. It hurt. They wept over Stephen. I'm sure they wept over James when they heard the news. But we know from, from church tradition, and again, the ways we know that the, the, the way the apostles were martyred, we, we know from 
diff- different sources of church tradition, which we don't treat like sacred scripture, right? We don't say we know for 100% sure these things are absolutely true, um, but I still think they're helpful, and, and the description of James's beheading describes God giving grace to James in the midst of, of being martyred. And so what happens is the, the executioner is bringing him out to be beheaded, and is so inspired by James's courage, and, and I, I would assume that James has given him the gospel as, as he's, you know, he's experiencing this, and the executioner becomes a Christian, and he says, you killed me too. And both are beheaded in that moment. And so the all-powerful, good, wise God can exercise that, that power in a multitude of ways. And we see him do uh, that in James's life. We also see that him do that in, in Peter's life. Right? And we want to be careful that when we see bad things, we don't, we don't want to say, well, God did that. God did that. God, God is not the originator of evil. He's not the originator of sin. Human beings are the originators. They, they rejected God, and sin entered into the world, and, and the condition of death entered into the world. But we have to say that He at least allows it, and that He has control to stop it. Otherwise, we can't give God glory when He does stop it. And so, again, it's not God did something evil, but he does have power to stop it. And sometimes he wisely, although it's hard to understand sometimes, he releases that power and, and, and allows bad things to happen. Now, he exerts that power in a different way in Peter's life. In verse 7, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Love this. This is the real turn here. Now, this, this word translated behold, um, it's the, the Greek word edu, and it, it, it can be translated in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's translated look or suddenly, uh, but it's a way that, that the Hebrews would use. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a scene change, and sometimes it's not even translated. It's not even said. It's just, it's just a marker to say something has changed. Uh, J.R. Tolkien talks about when he was, was writing and he, he talked about this concept of the sudden joyous turn. And the way he would write is that things would get dark in the, in the uh, plot line. And it's, at that time you think, well, the hero's going to show up and the light's going to shine, it's going to get better. And then it gets worse, right? It just spirals down even darker. And the situation's more dire. And then when it gets so bad, you're, you're finally just giving up. You're just like, it, there's nothing that, that can save this, right? There's what Tolkien calls the sudden joyous turn, you know, and Gandalf shows up or, you know, something happens where light shines in. This is something similar. Light shines into this cell. We, we have an incarcerated Peter who's chained to two soldiers, and there's soldiers guarding the gates. The gates are completely locked, and there is no way out. And in just a few days, he's going to lose his head. And an angel shows up. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word angel? Maybe this? Maybe this? I mean, for some reason, when you Google angel, they're they're all white angels. I'm not sure why that is. But you, you think of this, right? 
You think of this. And this is not at all a biblical angel. Here's some snapshots of biblical angels. Exodus 23, 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. That's a biblical angel, right? This takes one. Don't need a whole army of angels. You just need one walk in the promised land, wipe the place out, right? Or, or this one. This is a, after a siege of uh, the Assyrians that have... Uh, siege this city, and God's people are inside. They're scared to death, and, and here's what happens then. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead bodies. One angel. Just one. Don't need two. Don't, don't need a dozen. Don't need a hundred. Just one. Walk in, wipe out. Psalm 35, this is a, a prayer. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. <laughs> comes from what, what's called an imprecatory psalm <laughs> where the, the enemies are bearing down and they're praying for God's uh, rescue, His release, and saying, just one angel, just one, just one angel pursuing the enemy. Or this one, the, very, the psalm before that, 34-7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. They're always masculine when you see them in the Bible. That doesn't mean they're, they're male. They can't procreate. Uh, they're not human male kind of, kind of beings, but they are masculine and they're military. They always appear as warriors. When we, hear, we see the phrase heavenly hosts, that means angel armies. They are at war. And when this angel shows up, the scene changes. An incredibly dark, dire moment becomes lit with light, right? So it's pretty funny, I think. I think there's a lot of funny parts of the story. The angel struck Peter on the side, woke him, saying, get up quickly, right? It's almost like waking a teenager, you know, like, come on, get up, come on, Peter. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. <laughs> and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I know some of you rolled out to class. Kind of, kind of like, am I, is it a dream? Am I really in physics? Um, I'm not sure. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. And rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Everything changes. An all-powerful, all-good, all-wise God sends an angel and in a heartbeat, everything changes. He says that he's been freed from the hand of Herod. That phraseology is probably tying back to the hand of Pharaoh. And he, he's, he's hearkening back to that and saying, God has rescued me. He's redeemed me out of this this pit, this 
myself. Everyone else thought it was a done deal. Herod thought it was a done deal. The soldiers thought it was a done deal. Honestly, the church thought it was a done deal. I mean, think of it. The next part of the story, Peter shows up at the house where they're praying. He's knocking on the door. The servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, sees that it's Peter. He gets so excited, she doesn't open the door. <laughs> Peter's just knocking. She runs back to the prayer meeting. Hey, guys, our prayers have been answered. Peter's here. And they're like, you're crazy. There's a part of them that this does not believe that God could ever get him out of there and save him. But they're still praying. You ever done that? Look, these folks are ordinary Christians. They really are, just like you and me. They're not super Christians. They're not praying these prayers that are 100% pure faith, right? They're just like you and me. And they're praying, they're crying out to God, they're trying to trust in His providence. It's hard to do that. And Rhoda comes back and it's like, hey, He's really here. And they're like, no, He's not. And poor Peter's out there. He's like looking like, my gosh, I cannot arrest me again. Open the door. And they finally open the door. And he's like, then they're going crazy. And he's like, stop talking. They're going to come get me. And, and, and then he goes into hiding. Now, he comes out, and we see, we'll see him again. But, but he has been rescued. And, and all it took was one angel. And what, from what I can tell, it really wasn't that hard for the angel. I mean, getting Peter awake was hard. But, but other than that, right? So next morning comes, comes around, and... Uh, there's a lot of commotion back at the, at the jail, and I'm sure that the, these soldiers are out of their minds, partly because they know the protocol that if you lose a prisoner, you lose your life. And it, it, was, it was just protocol. It's just how the Roman Empire worked. And it caused you to be highly motivated to hang on to your prisoner. Right? You, I'm going to die. Right? And so uh, they killed all those soldiers. Herod wipes them out. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't know what to do with it. I'm sure he's scratching his head and decides to go on a little vacation. He leaves the town. And, uh, and then this chapter ends with a little story about Herod, verse 20. So jump down to 12, Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food and on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not, have God, did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So what seems to be happening there is that a group of people wanted what Herod could give them. Right? They, they wanted some... Uh, some food, they wanted to be able to get some resources, and so Herod comes to talk to them, and, and, they, and he gets up to give his oration, and, and, and they're like, oh, you're, the, you're amazing, Herod. <laughs> they don't really mean it, but they want what he can give them. And Herod accepts it. You're right, I am a God, right? And then he dies. And he stays eaten by worms, like, that's weird. Honestly, everyone in the ancient world had worms. I'm just going to be honest. Okay. Their water w was not pure. Their food were, was not pure. And everybody had worms. And everybody had digestive problems. And oftentimes people died in that way. Not, not a good way to go. Um, 
And you say, well, how, how do we know? Like, that, that just seems like out there, right? Actually, it's interesting. There's, there's this uh, a Jewish historian named uh, Josephus who corroborates this story. And he is not sympathetic to Christians. He's not a Christian. But he tells the story as well. And he describes the, the royal robes that Herod was wearing that day. And he says they're the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers, okay, so they're manipulating him, they cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And then he goes on to describe, upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. And then he goes on to describe that he had a pain in his stomach and that they brought him back to the palace and in five days he was dead. And so it's, it's an interesting corroboration of what Luke reports in um, Acts chapter 12. And it lets us know that in the providence of God, um, in the power of God, Herod's not a problem. You know, he's cutting off James's head, and we think, oh, man, Herod, he's just getting to do whatever he wants, and he, he, he doesn't have to answer to God. That's not true. God's actually still in charge, right? This is, this is, this is how you got to understand providence, is that sometimes God allows things to happen that are horrific. Sometimes he, he steps in, and, and he changes the outcome in a way that, that we would say is, is good, but it's always good. It's always good all the time. And so we go from having a dead James and an imprisoned Peter to a free Peter and a dead Herod. And it's the providence of God. And then Luke gives us the results here. Verse 24, this is so, just, this is so intentionally placed, right? He says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke, Luke's letting us know and letting us know that... The, letting us know that the church knew that nothing was going to stop the mission of God. No religious leaders, no political leaders, no, no friends and family that were persecuting, nobody who got killed. Well, whatever happened to the, to the early church, nothing was going to stop the mission of God. God was going to do whatever He had to do in an all-powerful, all-wise, all-good way to move that mission Forward. And yes, that plan included the, the martyrdom of some of his choicest servants. And again, Jesus told them up front, this is, this is going to happen. This is part of the plan. And, and he let them know that when it happened that they shouldn't think, oh, God's lost control of the church. He's lost control of the world. No, no, he, he's got control. And he's exercising it in a good and wise way. Way. Again, Jesus told this to them as well, that, that nothing would stop the mission. Matthew 16, 18, after Peter had made a profession of his belief in Christ, and he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? He's like, nothing's going to stop this. So Jesus is, 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 he is building his, his global church in every nation, in every tribe, every tongue, every culture is going to be reached with the gospel, nothing is going to stop it, no matter how difficult it might get, not, no, no matter how many people might give up their lives for the mission of the gospel. 
early 1950s, um, folks were, were getting excited about the mission. They were getting excited about getting the gospel to all of the nations. And Jim and Elizabeth Elliot met at uh, Wheaton College, it's a Christian college in Wheaton, Illinois, and they graduated from there, and they joined four other couples. Uh, the, this, this second picture is of, can't see it very well, but um, it's five men who were missionaries and, and, and then their wives, and they went to Ecuador, and they wanted to reach the Alka Indians, and the Alka Indians were known for their violence and hostility. And so they, they began to try to build trust with the Alcas, and they would use airplanes, and they would drop food for the Alcas, and, and, and over several months, uh, they, they did this to build, build trust, and then the day came when they felt like it's time to try to make contact. And they left any kind of weapons back, back at, the, at their home base, and they got in the airplane, and they came down on this beach, and they, they came out of the airplane, and Alcas came out to, to, to greet them and speared all five of them to death, right there on the spot. And Life Magazine ended up coming out to cover that story. Um, and the, the widows were all interviewed. Uh, some of the widows went back into the, the, the Alka jungle and continued to share the gospel with those that had killed their husbands. Uh, those Alcas did become Christians. That tribe converted. Other tribes converted through their witness. In addition to that, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, who was married to Jim, ended up, after ministering to the Alcas, coming back uh, stateside, stateside and telling their story. She traveled literally all over the world, wrote a ton of books, uh, talked about the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people. God used her to, to reach many, many, many with the gospel. He also caused that story to give courage to many around the world to do what it took to get the gospel around the nations. And many, many young men and women who, who were encouraged by that, they, they took that step to go out and to share the gospel. I, my, my hope is that story would encourage some of you to pack it up and go to the nations with the gospel. You can, you can find out more about uh, their story. They have a movie and a documentary. So the movie is called End of the Spear, and the documentary is called Beyond the Gates of Splendor. The documentary, I think, is actually better than the movie because you get to hear the widows who, you know, at this point, I think this was in 2006 that they made the documentary or some, somewhere around there. So they're old, and they're telling the story, and they're, they're still weeping over um, what they experienced, but joy-filled over what God had done. Nothing will stop the gospel. Nothing. No, no spear, no sword, no, no law that restrains Christians. Nothing will stop the gospel. Jesus is building His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the how-to guide of dealing with persecution, right? Expect persecution. We need to hear this as Americans. I, I, you know, living in the United States, and it's not all of you are Americans, but living in the United States, you, you start to kind of think that persecution is something that, that, that's a, an anomaly. And, and we do. We have freedoms that are, are such a blessing. We can gather here. We don't, we don't have to post guards at the doors and let us know if someone's coming in. But there are countries where you have to post guards at the door if you're having church. But we don't have to do that. 
But when persecution does come up, that we should, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be surprised. Jesus warned his disciples that this is part of what it means to be a Christ follower. And then to trust that God is always powerful, he's always good, he's always wise. No matter what, no matter what is happening, he's always good, always wise, always powerful. And then to pray earnestly, persistently, corporately. I, re- I think it's one of the things that, that God is, is trying to grow our church in. For a lot of our church experience, our church history, we've relied on the prayers of others, honestly. I mean, there's just people that were praying, that were supporters of the staff, the support, you know, folks that we uh, have as partners uh, in ministry that were praying for our church, and, and we kind of rode that, those prayers. But, but that was okay for that time, but it's not okay for now. This is a, this is a new season where, where, where folks are taking ownership of the necessity to, to pray for the church, to pray for the leadership, to pray for the mission, to pray for the valley, and, and to do that as individuals, but also corporately, and to gather, and to pray. And, and, and it, the mission's not going to move forward if, if we're not going to be crying out to God persistently and fervently and corporately. And if this works in the dark, dire hours of persecution, where people are losing their heads, surely it would work when things aren't, not, aren't, aren't so dire. You come in here this morning, you may not be worried about being incarcerated, tortured, or killed for your faith, but, but you come heavy laden. You, you come with, with burdens, things that, that you're looking at, and you're like, God, how could you be powerful and this is happening? How could you be good and this is happening? How could you be wise and this is happening, right? And so be encouraged this morning. That He is powerful. He is good. He is wise. Trust in His providence. And pray that He would do something in the midst of that. Don't give up praying. Don't, don't think, well, it is what it is. If I pray, I don't pray. It doesn't matter. It does matter. Engage those situations, both inside of you that you're wrestling with and outside of you that you're wrestling with, with fervent persistent prayer, and ask others to pray with you. I think one, one of the reasons God is at work in this church in, in some powerful ways is because of the prayer requests. People write prayer requests, and folks are praying over those, and God's meeting that with answers, and, and it's been encouraging in my own faith to see how God's answering those prayers. And, and to re- remind ourselves, while angels are pretty awesome, we have one who is much greater than an angel. In fact, that's what the Hebrew, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 1, talking about Jesus. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Put that on your resume, okay? <laughs> Holding the universe, not with my hand, just the word, Right? And then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the book of Hebrews written to uh, folks that are Hebrew, right? They know about angels. They don't think about little cupids when they hear the word angels. They think about angels. And for the, the writer of Hebrews to say, no, Jesus is superior to the angels. 
His glory much more glorious than any created angel. And that this one who's superior to the angels, he underwent persecution. Even death, death on a cross. He knows what it's like to to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, take this cup away from me, but not my will. Your will be done. That's trusting in providence, right? But not in a way that's like, it is what it is. He didn't go in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, well, it is what it is, you know? No, he, he, with, with fervent prayer, he went to the Father. Take this cup. Not my will, your will. Right? I know you're good. I know you're wise. I'm, I'm going to trust this plan. And he did. He trusted that plan. We remember that plan every time we come to the table, do we not? We think about Jesus on the night before his death, the night on which he was betrayed. Like things are not going well. His own followers are rejecting him. If there's ever a time when Jesus should say, you know what, God, Father, you've lost control here. That's not what he thinks. He takes bread, he breaks it. He gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he'd taken the cup, he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And he leaned in to the providence of the Father. Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he didn't think, oh, well, you've lost control. I'm, I'm going I'm to step out of this. No, he leaned in. And by God's providence, that crucifixion, which... On the surface, seemed like that the plan had failed, but in, instead, by, through God's providence, the plan was being executed. And in three days, he rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. And you can know 100% that that plan is going to be carried out in the power and the goodness and the wisdom of God. For some of you, you've, you've never trusted initially in that good and wise, powerful God. I want to encourage you to do that if, if you're not a Christian, to, to, to trust in Christ this morning, to receive that forgiveness that comes only through His death on the cross, to be forgiven, to be washed clean, to be given His Holy Spirit, to be brought into relationship with Him. And then from that point forward, to live under His, his good and powerful and wise fathering, shepherding, shepherding as, as His child. If you want to talk more about that after the service or in the back when we're um, taking communion here in a minute, I'm happy to do that. But this would be a great time to begin to live under His good providence. And others of us, we, uh, we have things that we carried in here that, that we are thinking, God, you've lost control, or we've, we've thought, God, I, I've just quit praying, I, I don't even think it's worth it. God, we, we need to bring those to God. We need to bring our faithlessness, we need to bring our our hard-heartedness, our, our weariness in the midst of those situations to God, knowing that because of what Christ has done on the cross, by His grace, by the power of His Spirit, we can be um, enlivened today. Don't, don't we need that? To continue to trust in the good providence of God. Let's pray. God, You are good. You're good all the time. As we sang earlier, make our hearts believe Lord, our hearts are so easily swayed by the circumstances around us and 
if we're honest, Lord, most of our circumstances really aren't that bad. Our friends aren't having their heads cut off. But Lord, those things still hurt. Those things are difficult in our lives. And so we, our hearts are so easily swayed, God. And so, God, we pray for grace. We pray for forgiveness for that. That, Lord, our hearts would trust you wholeheartedly. And we know we can't do that in our own strength, Lord. We can't just sort of muster that up. So, God, would you come in the power of your spirit and refresh us? Lord, I know there are many that, that have things that are, are so heavy and, and they're overburdensome, God, but may they, may they be lifted in the midst of that, God, to lean in with absolute faith and trust and to continue to pray fervently and earnestly, God. And also, God, help us as a church to pray corporately, to learn what that means, to pray for one another. And we pray for this time of taking the bread and the cup. We thank, thank you for what it reminds us of, God, leaning into your providential plan that resulted in so much good for us and glory for you. And so bless this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.